do you like receiving invitations? You know, one arrives and you open it. Perhaps it's an invitation to a party or to go and visit a friend you haven't seen for a while. Or maybe even a sleepover. You're excited as you look forward to that day coming and you're counting down each day. And every day it gets that little bit closer. Well, here's one that we received just before Christmas. Let's have a look, shall we? It's an invitation to a wedding. One of our daughters was going to be getting married. There was going to be a celebration and a party. It was going to happen next Saturday and we were all excited and looking forward to it. But of course, all that's changed since we went into lockdown. Now it can't happen, at least not in the way we were expecting. Of course, we're still looking forward to it and expecting we will get the chance to celebrate one day. Just not next Saturday. The invitation is sitting on the shelf in more ways than one. Sometimes things we don't expect happen suddenly and then everything changes. And we've been thinking about that over the last few weeks. Today, we're looking at a passage from the Bible, which we find in the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is a book of praise songs, perhaps a little bit like this one. It's a book of praise songs that was used by the Israelites that we read about in the Bible. And it's still used in churches like ours today. It's Psalm 95. Ardell read the opening verses of it to us at the beginning of our time together this morning. And it opens with this invitation. Come, says the writer, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud. He sounds excited and he wants us to come and share that excitement with him. To be singing, shouting, maybe even dancing. Hurry up, come along. You don't want to miss this, he's saying. God's here. Stop whatever else you are doing. Let's give him all of our attention. Let's tell him and everyone else just how marvellous and wonderful he is. Now we recognise that to come singing into God's presence isn't the only way. Sometimes things are really hard and difficult and silence or tears are the more appropriate response but it is an important way in which we express our faith in him and our love for him to remind ourselves of who he is but we're not just being encouraged to put on a happy face simply to think happy thoughts. No, this is real joy and it's grounded in a deep understanding of who God is. The writer goes on to tell us, to remind us that he is the rock of our salvation, our place of refuge and safety. Here is one who is greater, not just than ourselves, but greater 
than the whole world. Greater than all of space and time. Even greater than many things that we cannot even see. He created everything. And ultimately, he is in control of everything. Even our current situation and circumstances, which are just a small part of that bigger everything. And as we read on in this psalm, we find a further invitation. Come, bow, kneel. Now we're getting to the heart of it. Without this, all of that singing, all of that dancing, all of that excitement just won't be real. It will be false and hollow. The verbs, the action words here, suggest this idea of lowering ourselves before God. And that's the word that we often encounter as translated as worship. A word that means to prostrate oneself, to get face down on the ground before God. <laughs> Maybe that seems a bit too much, a bit over the top. Not the way we do things around here. But it is just simply a way of demonstrating physically that we're surrendering ourselves to him. Not out of fear, but because as I trust in him and give myself to him I find that I'm in a place of safety and security. The writer says we are in his pasture, a place where we are fed and nourished, a pleasant place to be and we are under, remember we've just got down low, we are under his care. Sometimes we don't feel like worshipping God. Sometimes we come in tears rather than in joy. But the invitation is still there. What's important, I believe, is that we just show up. We remind ourselves of who he is, what he's like and what he has done. So here's the question. How do I... How do we worship God when I'm alone? When everything is stripped back? Imagine an extreme lockdown in which there's no internet. There's no YouTube. It's gone. Spotify has gone. Oh, and those worship songs on your phone, they've gone too. No worship CDs to put on and sing along to. It's just me. It's just us and God. What does my worship look and feel like then? As we return to Psalm 95, we're suddenly brought up short with this stark warning. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. 
there's a note of warning. What's going on? Now, some commentators have suggested that what we have here are two completely different texts, written at different times and then later stuck together. However, most biblical scholars these days believe this is a single unified piece of work. And I think this makes much more sense of the text. The writer is drawing our attention to two places, Meribah and Masa, whose literal meaning is quarrel or rebellion and testing. And this was helpfully brought out in the translation which Carl read to us uh, just a little earlier. The writer is trying to draw our attention back to the story of the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. Do we remember how it goes? God has rescued his people, the Israelites, out of their captivity and slavery in Egypt. And he's done this with a remarkable demonstration of his power. And you can check that out later in Exodus it's chapters 13, 14 through to 17, where we read about Meribah and Massa. Now, at first, it's all going well. They're free. They've been rescued, liberated. But it soon turns to grumbling and complaining. They wanted things to go back to the way they were. Perhaps they were looking for a return to normal. They missed the good food that they'd been having in Egypt. Now, of course, they conveniently forgot the bit about slavery and hard labour. And also they'd seen God demonstrate his awesome power, but they'd lost faith. The way ahead seems too hard. Yet God was patient and generous. He even provides them with quail for dinner, which admittedly, even for those of us who get excited when we see quail on the menu, could perhaps be a bit much every day. But still, they grumble. And so we end up at Massa and Meribah. They want fresh water and they're complaining to Moses that he's brought them out into the desert to die. Now bear in mind that it's not that long, we just read in the previous chapter, that God had miraculously provided them with fresh drinking water. But they quarrel with God, says the text, and they test him. They refuse to take him at his word, and unbelief rises up. So that's the backstory. But why is it here? And what is it saying to us? Right at the beginning of this story, God sent Moses to declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the bit we all remember. But it actually goes on. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me 
in the wilderness. It sounds a little bit like, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. That's the great call at the beginning of this psalm. And that's what's going on here. I believe that's the same call to us here and now. Today, if you will hear his voice. And it's a today, not just for the first people who heard this psalm, but it's a today for now, for today. The letter of the Hebrews, the writer there, spends over a chapter just unpacking the second half of this psalm and explaining that this day is a day in the future that God is inviting us to, that today is today. And that's the first thing for us to get hold of. We've been jolted out of our familiar routines, the things that we were comfortable with and we find ourselves in a strange new place. Some have likened it to being in the wilderness. And God is, I believe, calling us to a new place of worship where all else is stripped away, a place of deeper intimacy with him where we can begin to get a far, far greater revelation of, and understanding of who he is. Some of the prayer networks that I'm connected with talk about this being a time when God is calling us to come back to him and to be building family altars, perhaps figuratively rather than literally, but building family altars in our own homes. What do we mean by that? It's about making our homes intentionally focused places of family worship, finding a new intimacy with him. And it's been such an encouragement and a joy to me to see that happening in a little way on these Sunday mornings, as we've seen different families in the fellowship leading us in worship from their homes. Secondly, it was hard journeying into the wilderness. Perhaps when our lockdown started, although it was hard for some, perhaps some of us, things seemed okay at first. Maybe it felt a little bit like a holiday, a staycation. And maybe we wonder whether at the start of their journey, the Israelites were abuzz with excitement hey, we're off on this great camping holiday in the desert of Sinai. But as time goes on, it gets harder. We begin to yearn for things to be as they were, for a return to the familiar, to the normal. But for the Israelites, God had a new destination in mind a promised land, some place far better than the place they had come from. And I believe for us too, God has a new destination in mind, perhaps not physically, but certainly spiritually. This is a time in which God is calling us not 
back to the old way of doing or being church, to the old way of living, but to something new, something which is far, far better. It won't necessarily be easy. We have a glimpse now, perhaps, of what that might be like. But just as the Israelites had to follow a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, we will have to stay close to God and follow him day by day if we're to reach the destination he has set for us. Now it might be tempting to think that the wilderness experience is the place of exile. But in fact, the Israelites were really in exile when they were in Egypt. They'd gone down there during a time of widespread food shortages and somehow ended up getting stuck there for over 400 years. And I think there's a bit of a parallel here for us, not in the 400 years I hope, but a call out of exile in our surrounding culture. Egypt was a place of idolatry, just as our nation is today. It's not our true home. Our values are not, certainly should not, be the same. Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but not a part of it. Now, idolatry is the fundamental problem of the human condition. When we stop worshipping the Creator and look for ultimate safety, ultimate security, ultimate identity, ultimate self-worth, ultimate pleasure, ultimate fulfilment in other things. In the Old Testament, the prophets warned the people of Israel that God's judgment would fall on them because of their idolatry. The Apostle Paul reiterates this point as he writes his letter to the Roman church. Idolatry leads us into sin because it leads us away from God. So is this a time we find ourselves in when we need to be realigning our priorities, reevaluating? Are we testing God? not taking him at his word. They tried me, that they had seen what I did, says the psalm in verse 9. What have the Israelites seen and what have we seen? They saw God's judgment on Egypt and their rescue out of Egypt. We have seen in the sacrifice, death and resurrection of Jesus, God's judgment on sin and the redemption of those who will accept his gift of salvation and reconciliation. Do we doubt God's goodness, his faithfulness, his promises? Where have we looked to other things for our safety, our ultimate security, our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate sense of worth? So this is the third thing. God 
calling us to clear out the clutter in our lives, to allow him into the rooms we've previously kept him out of, to abandon our own idols. And as we get to the end of this psalm, we see that this testing, this unbelief, this faithfulness on our part grieves God. It provokes him to anger. God getting angry. That probably makes us feel uncomfortable, and perhaps it should. God is angry because he sees the consequences of our rebelling against him, like the silly children we can so often be. It saddens his heart to see the damage and destruction that causes. I think we often fail to grasp this fully. The Israelites, for a whole generation, missed out on God's promised rest. There are always consequences to what we do. And how could they enter into what God had for them when they were wanting to run off in the opposite direction? How can we enter into what God has for us when we go filling our lives with other things? It's sobering to look back and see that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And that had catastrophic implications, both for him personally and for all of the Egyptians. These things matter. God isn't capriciously angry, but he is righteously angry because he knows that idolatry and sin diminish us when in fact, because of all that Jesus has done, in reality, they no longer have any hold over us, unless, of course, we allow them to. Now, during the lockdown, we've all found our own ways of communicating with one another. For many of us, it is by using Zoom, but not everyone is able to use or is comfortable with using this technology. And for one member of our house group, we communicate with them via that old-fashioned technology, email. And as Sandra and I were putting together the different parts of this service, we received an email from Sarah Thomas, which really resonated with what we had been preparing and prompted, uh, as you'll see, the inclusion of one of the songs that we sang earlier. Sandra's going to read... Sarah's letter for us. Sarah Thomas wrote, I've been very impacted this week with the Matt Redmond song, The Heart of Worship. We know the unique story behind the song of Mike Pilavachi banning all worship music for a season at their church because it had become, he felt, all about the worship and they had lost sight of who they were worshipping. They were having incredible services, he said, but they had lost touch with Jesus himself. So for a time they had no music or singing in the services just sitting and focusing on Jesus, very hard, he said. 
It seems to me, says Sarah, that the church worldwide has been stripped back to basics in one way. Although we have online services, it is very different to all of us physically being together in our church buildings on a Sunday morning, lifting our voices together in praise and worship, fellowshipping with each other, growing together as we hear the word preached, praying together, sharing coffee together afterwards. And for some people, that is particularly hard. But it's also quite sad to me that some Christians have expressed relief at not having to be at church on Sundays because they find it so stressful, mainly because of all the 101 pre-church practical things that need to be done before we can have church, as well as persuading reluctant children to get up and get dressed because it's Sunday and we need to get to church preferably on time for once. A lot of people's joy and spiritual fervour is lost right there. And so sometimes church becomes hard work rather than a place to meet with the Lord and his people. We forget what it's all for, what the heart of worship is. It's Jesus. So it occurs to me that while we are going through this very difficult time and we cannot do church as normal and we can't be together, that we can use this time, all of us, to re-examine why we do what we do. God could do a wonderful work in us individually and as a church as all is stripped away and we simply come back to the heart of worship and it's all about you Jesus we're sorry Lord for the thing we've made it when it's all about you Jesus whatever we do after this terrible pandemic is over please let's not go back to normal as far as God is concerned let's let God strip things away in our hearts and attitudes and bring us back to the real heart of everything we do. Jesus. All about you, Jesus. Is God trying to get our attention through this current time of crisis and lockdown? I believe he is. And that the central call is for us not to be looking back to the way things were, but to recognise that he is doing a new work, that church and our lives are going to be very different in the future. We're on a journey to discover what that will be, but I believe that it will be richer and more beautiful than what we have had before. And as we've seen, that spins out in two directions. Firstly, a call back to the heart of worship, making it all about Jesus, making our homes and our personal lives the centre of our worship, our praise, our mission. And secondly, a warning 
it's time to clear out the rubbish. What are we holding on to in place of God that needs to go? Let's not test him or fall into unbelief, but trust that he is in control, that his ways are good. Indeed, his ways are the best, and he will lead us through. As we continue now, Tim is going to lead us in a song which we can use as a prayer of commitment, a declaration of commitment, that we are moving forward with Jesus. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us draw close to God in joyful worship. Then we will hear his voice. And in that place of worship, let's allow our hearts to be softened as we yield to the living God, our rock, our king, our creator, our rescuer.